Are you a teacher or student who's always wanted to learn more about CubeSats in the classroom? Then don't miss this opportunity. The inaugural SmallSat Education Conference will serve as an important East Coast gathering where educators, administrators, and students will learn about CubeSats, ThinSats, and high-altitude balloon programs. Our target audiences are faculty and students from middle school all the way through college. Presenters will include existing university teams and industry experts. Attendance is free for students and educators, and exhibitors and vendors are encouraged to showcase their products and services. To learn how to start your own program, join us on October 29th and 30th at the Center for Space Education Building at the Kennedy Space Center Visitors Center. Please visit the website for more information and to reserve a space. You can find that at smallsateducation.org. That's S-M-A-L-L-S-A-T education.org. Let's go to Space Blue Sky Learning, Episode 84, Space Law and Ethics with Michelle Hanlon. Now, our listeners know that aerospace is not just about being an astronaut or an engineer, both of which are, of course, fine career options. But, in fact, almost any field that you have here on Earth will be needed as we become spacefaring nations, including, yes, you guessed it, lawyers. Today, Kevin and I meet with Michelle Hanlon, who is a space lawyer. Ms. Hanlon is co-director of the Air and Space Law Program at the University of Mississippi School of Law. She's also the editor-in-chief of both the Journal of Space Law and the Journal of Drone Law and Policy. Michelle co-founded For All Moonkind, which is a nonprofit that's the only organization in the world focused on protecting human history in outer space. For All Moonkind is a permanent observer in the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. And as if all that weren't enough to make her an expert in today's conversation, Michelle is also president of the National Space Society and a founding partner of ABH Space Law. For all our talkies out there who love policy work, this is an episode that you won't want to miss. And as always, we hope that you'll stay tuned after for our takeaways. Well, Michelle Hanlon, thank you so much for meeting with us this afternoon. Please start off by telling our listeners a little bit about how you came to be involved in space. So thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here because I love talking about space. I actually am a lawyer and I was not initially involved in space because I could not for the life of me figure out pre-cal, much less calculus. And so I thought, okay, that's done. I, a child of Star Trek who didn't want to be anything more than the captain of the Enterprise, um, realized or thought, oh, okay, well that, that door is closed for me. Um, and it was actually just about six or seven years ago uh, that one of my sons came to me and said, you know, um, you, you have all this space stuff around. Obviously, we watch every space movie that ever came out. And I have all the sci-fi, Douglas Adams, best author ever. Um, and, uh, and he's like, you know, I really want to do this. I really want to mine asteroids when I grow up. And, you know, you got to figure out that whole property thing, because right now I'm not allowed to own it. And I was like, okay. Um, and it was just a really great time in my life to transition from doing mergers and acquisitions, really fun corporate law stuff, um, but to really go back to what I what has always been my passion. Um, and so I actually went back to school at a, a very ripe old age of 50 
and um, earned my master's in uh, space law. And now I teach space law and also uh, run my own NGO, which is focused on um, a lot of different aspects of space law. I want to ask you a question about going back to school. So you were already a lawyer and then going back to school allowed you to specialize in the area of space law. So was that an additional like how long did you have to add on to already having your your well, your law degree? So um, in the United States, you take you get your law degree after your undergraduate. So you do that three years of law school. I did that. I graduated um, in the 90s. And um, and then I had I went back for a, a year. It took a, a full year. It's about nine months of classes and then you um, have to write an intensive master's thesis um, and that took me an additional three or four months um, that is not okay. as bad as i thought it was going to be actually that sounds fantastic so somebody can switch and it allows somebody later in life as you're pointing out to to kind of focus on a niche That's well, I, great. I, and i think once you have a terminal degree everything else is gravy so you you had all the prereqs that anyone could ever hope for. I got to go back to your initial opening statement about Star Trek. Um, I have two questions, well, I'm, as lawyers would say, I do have a follow-up after the first question, but uh, next generation or original series? Oh, original series, yeah. Jean-Luc Picard is no James T. Kirk, I'm sorry. So uh, to, to, quote, uh, to quote, uh, well, you've already answered that question. I was gonna hit you with a big bang question. They would always go, uh, next generation over original series, Kirk over Picard, things like that. Um, yeah. So here's my uh, follow-up question is, I always encourage the kids to watch these shows because they have so many great ethical dilemmas and things related to today couched in science fiction. And, um, you know, some people, uh, some people will complain about that, but I think that's the greatest way to help share with younger audiences real world scenarios would you like to comment on that star trek is a soap opera it it takes place in space right um and and instead of sort of battling you know thieves around the corner they're battling aliens or trying to befriend aliens i agree i think you know star trek the original series was really breakthrough for a lot of reasons it pushed the envelope an awful lot um, I grew up actually overseas. I didn't grow up in the United States and my mother is Chinese. My dad is Polish. And so for me to see the, um, the, the deck, you know, with the, all the diversity was so natural to me. And, you know, to, to think, to, to build these, you know, people, people who poo poo science fiction, poo poo it as oh, it's utopia, you know, it was never a utopia. Um, it was hard. Um, yeah, we, we do. We, and this is what, this is what space lawyers do getting from here to Star Trek world. Um, that's my job. And that's, that's, I'm teaching the next generation of lawyers so that we can achieve that Star Trek world and not that Star Wars world, right? Right, right. Well, I always say Star Wars is mythology. Star Trek yeah. is science fiction. And that's a big difference. Uh, by the way, the joke is when did Star Wars, uh, Star Trek, become woke and the answer is of course 1966. So. <laughs> well you know because they they do I mean I'm not the Trekkie that you are right uh, but I mean th there's so many ethical uh, discussions that come up in their episodes that when you look back on it it really so I mean bar. if we just go top to bottom it's uh, politics race religion gender identity uh, social norms uh, Anyway, I, I, I appreciate you sharing that, and uh, that's a podcast unto itself, but let's pivot back to space law. As I, in my novice, you know, meek, minor kind of way, look across the terrain, I see a few major issues. I would love to get your high-level take on some of them. 
I think we have to start with um, some easy ones. Uh, management of the bandwidths of the EM spectrum, uh, who, who gets what, when, why, uh, rules for that. Second, obviously debris mitigation. Third, um, we need a cislunar internet around the moon. And do you feel like that will be something the world will share or is it gonna be sort of US centric like the GPS and the Russian version or the Chinese version? And, and lastly, uh, rights, uh, mineral rights and ownership of locations, if not the moon itself. So I, I know that's a, lot. that's a lot. I will let you decide in what order or which ones you'd like to answer. So I didn't write them down. So if I forget one, just remind me. But well, you did start with the easiest one. And for that, I'm grateful. You know, we, we've actually figured that out, kind of, um, how to uh, ration the frequencies and the orbits, right? Um, the International Telecommunications Union, uh, which is in charge of all of our radio frequencies here on Earth, you know, the, the story being that um, at one point we were not all sharing the same radio frequencies and we lost a, uh, an entire passenger boat because they were, they were looking for help and everyone else who was nearby was on a different radio frequency. Um, and so, you know, at that point we were like, oh, well, that's kind of stupid. Um, and we ought to fix this. And so that same organization um, was given the job of helping us share radio frequencies and orbits in space. And they um, allot uh, frequencies by nation and the nations allot them within themselves to different commercial entities. Um, what they've done and not entirely successfully, um, but it, it's a, you know, A for effort kind of situation is they have actually set aside frequencies and orbits for countries that don't yet have satellites. And that's that's a really important thing because um, the last thing you talked about, mineral rights, it's gonna be that same sort of concern. Um, they, there are countries that are not um, actively harnessing space resources at this point in time. There's no doubt that they're going to be, there's no doubt that they are already reaping the benefits of many space resources, um, primarily remote sensing satellites. Uh, but, the, and, and nobody wants to sort of, uh, you know, drag them along or anything. They just want their fair share. They want their their fair opportunity. And so we need to continue to think about how we protect those opportunities for everybody because the, the one, the seminal document um, that governs space law, the Outer Space Treaty, the fundamental principle is that space um, is for everybody. Um, and so we have to make sure that that's our general job is to make that work. Um, that actually goes hand in hand with with uh, debris um, and you raise such a the the alarmist thought about debris is oh no germs disease infection we're never going to get out of our orbit oh no or, or the movie gravity where you know the the station gets uh, hit by the spacecraft gets hit um, unfortunately that alarmist attitude is probably the one we need to have right now um, there is a scientist named um, John Kessler who um, worked on a theory um, a couple decades ago and said, you know, if we keep uh, launching spacecraft into orbit the way we are, um, and, you know, they're just going to start hitting each other and they're going to create debris, we are going to block ourselves from orbit. And so that was just us just launching stuff and having extra, you know, old satellites up there. There's eight, there's 8,000 defunct satellites on orbit. They're not doing anything. On top of that though, you know, humans are humans, right? We can't just sort of look up at the sky and wonder, we have to think, hey, I wanna show everybody I can blow that stuff up. 
I want to prove to people that I can reach space and, you know, create damage. And so, you know, the US has done it, China has done it, and most India has done it. Most recently, Russia did it last November. Um, and again, this is, I, I teach a course on the, uh, the geopolitics of space, and it's really that sort of terrestrial, like, you know, pay attention to me um, attitude of, look, I'm a real space player. I can shoot down my own satellite. So what happens when that when you shoot it down? It doesn't come down into the atmosphere. It creates a even more debris. And when the, um, the Russians shot down their own satellite, the debris field actually put their own astronauts at risk. They had to move all of the astronauts on station into their uh, lifeboats because they were worried that station was going to get hit. So you know, in in terms of the when we talk about a lot of people will liken uh, the debris situation to climate change. Look, um, we are here and we need to deal with it and we need to fix it. Let's not talk about how it started. Let's not talk about whose fault it is. Let's just let's just talk about the fact that this is the world we're living in now and we have to do something to solve it. Um, and we're just starting, just starting to actually do what we call remediation efforts instead of just mitigation efforts. So now we're just moving beyond like, oh, if you, you know, try and be responsible about your stuff to no, okay, time to clean up after yourself. Um, and so we're really hoping to get a lot of, of activity behind that. So I have a question about that. I know you still have the other two topics as well, but you know, you mentioned the idea of equity, which is, seems like, you know, we want to save some space in space for these frequencies for, you know, making sure that countries who aren't there yet. And obviously we have a treaty that kind of says that that's what we need to do. But when you were talking about the debris and we're thinking about like what they were willing to do and put their own people in danger, or obviously they would care less about someone else's people. How do we, how do we account for the different values of different cultures when we're trying to kind of form what are going to be the ethics of a shared space? So that's one of those hard questions. You know, yeah. past, no, I'm kidding. It's the ethics part that really kind of like. Well, and it's also the biggest bullies. You know, this is the new high ground and it's the two big, you know, whoever's the big shots, they, it's a, it's a cold war, right? It's a, it's sort of a new cold war without, you know, direct. Well, yeah, just as I tell you, Hey, you got to clean up your debris. Doesn't mean I'm, I have to. No, I mean about the anti-satellite operations and no, the, no, I know, but the just supremacy, I guess, a a aspect. Yeah, in general. So what's really exciting about today that makes it very different from the Cold War is that the, the power of the individual. The individual has a lot more power today than they did in the 1960s. Um, and that is because of social media platforms. That is because of transparencies in the, in the certainly in the US government, maybe not in other governments, but also at the U United Nations level. So um, mm -hmm. I created an organization called For All Mankind uh, five years ago, and I became a permanent observer to the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space within two years of that formation. That's me, little old Michelle Hanlon, um, has a voice at the table at the United Nations. So that is right. the kind of transparency I'm talking about. And that is why, you know, this is not, this is not a chicken little, oh my goodness, we, no, can, no. we, we can do things. We have voices and we just need to figure out how, we need to learn how to channel those voices. And so when I, when I you know, think about students um, in particular, you know, and again, this isn't a blame game, you know, and I've heard right. enough, your generation has ruined it for us. Okay, I'm sorry, um, but but now I'm here, and and now we're going to fix it. And right. the the what the governments, the politicians need to hear the voices that say, 
we want to fix it and we want to spend the money to fix it because right now the politicians are, are hearing the loudest voices for money um, and those voices are not about space. I, I would also add to your well-constructed thought that we live in an era where space has been democratized due to uh, lowering, you know, once it was only two or three nations, right, going to space. Now, like us, we have middle school kids that are building their own satellites. So that is very powerful, right? It's no longer um, a national program. It's, uh, and I think the people often liken it to civilian airlines in the 1930s that space has now become economically viable. So the governments can withdraw a little, but then again, without regulation, I know we're in, uh, well, we're in the place we are now pretty much. Um, but. And this is one of the reasons I love your program so much, because one of the things that I battle all the time is this perception that space is for billionaires, because the mainstream media, it's all about Bezos and Musk and every now and then um, uh, Branson, right? Um, and that's not what space is about at all. Or, or we read about these, um, uh, these, these billionaires spending $55 million to go visit station for three days. Yeah, you know, and, and that's what I liken to the 20s and 30s of air travel. You know, back when airplanes first came along, um, they were really, really expensive. Um, and people didn't go and take airplanes to get from one place to another. They went up to go have lunch in the air and then they landed. You know, so does that sound familiar? It sounds a whole lot like Blue Origin, right? Right. So it's, um, it is, it, it's a really exciting time. And the fact that you have students who are able to put satellites on orbit, you know, who have that ability um, and first and, and harness all sorts of data from that. Um, it really shows you exactly, like you said, it's the democratization of space. Space is for everyone and space is accessible to everyone. Well, I know that Kevin had mentioned the other two, so we'll go back to that if that's okay with you. He'd mentioned the internet as, uh, and then also rights and ownership. So what are your thoughts about those emerging you know, areas and what's at the forefront of those? So what I would love to see around the moon, the cislunar internet, is that it be provided by a commercial entity, right? Um, and, then, and then they are able to sell to different governments. Of course, there are gonna be national security, you know, security interests and so that's going to be our biggest roadblock and um, under the, that outer space treaty our magna carta it says um, article four says uh, the moon and other celestial bodies shall be used exclusively for peaceful purposes um, so we know that we we can't you know if a nation were to put like a military military hardware they can't um, i'm a lawyer so think about that language it doesn't say don't put military hardware on the moon, right? It just says you're gonna use the moon exclusively for peaceful purposes. So ostensibly you can put the stuff on the moon just to have it there, I guess. Um, and when we think about uh, a cislunar internet, you know, we are gonna be concerned about how to protect communications. That's just, again, that's just fact of life. Well, so, uh, yeah, I was just gonna say ARPA, ARPA started the internet, right? That was a government funded activity. So I imagine the government will be there at the beginning and the DOD will get their little slice of whatever tech and, you know, their capabilities, but that doesn't preclude, um, you know, uh, uh, the internet, uh, as you said, uh, capitalism to, to fill that hole. Exactly. Um, uh, real quick pivot back, do, do nascent nations with no space programs, do they get little slots in geo on their line of longitude so that when they if they ever do have their own satellite, there's a home for it. Is that part of what you were saying about 
we have to allot resources for nations that aren't quite there yet? That is, that is the intent of the ITU system. Um, that, it, that has been corrupted. It has been, uh, you know, um, tampered with a bit. And, you know, the, a few years ago, um, Tonga put in a, a request for a bunch of um, slots, you know, which had ostensibly been saved for Tonga. And it turns out that they had sold the slots to a commercial entity. Um, and so, yeah, so the, that, you know, there, it's easily, anything is easily corruptible, right? But, but that is the intent. Right. Um, and, and so when, and then I'll, I will do the next pivot then when we think about um, minerals and resources um, on the moon and other celestial bodies. So uh, Article 2 of the Outer Space Treaty says um, no party to the treaty, and the treaty is about, is between countries, right? This isn't a treaty signed by any individuals. Elon Musk didn't sign the treaty. Um, it says no party may claim territory in space by sovereignty. Uh, occupation or by any other means. Okay, so um, I think everyone would be would understand that to mean, you know, when the United States put the American flag on the moon, when China robotically raised the Chinese flag on the moon, they weren't claiming territory. They were just saying, hey, we made it, right? Right. So th then the question is, well, when you, if you're actually extracting a resource, that really kind of feels like you're claiming territory, right? Because you're taking it. Well, President Obama signed into law um, an interpretation of Article 2, which says, yeah, we, we get Article 2, we're not, the United States is never going to claim sovereignty over anything in space, but we do believe that if you extract a resource from space, you can own that, that can become your property, you can, you can use it yourself, you can sell it to your friends, you can sell it to the highest bidder, whatever you want, once it's extracted, it is no longer territory, becomes your personal property. May, may I ask a specific example of this scenario you described? So we land on the moon. The moon doesn't belong to any of us. As soon as the astronaut takes a shovel of regolith and puts it in a bucket and takes that bucket somewhere, that's now U.S. property. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. Exactly. And this interpretation is not, you know, really dramatic because uh, guess what? Americans and Russians and Chinese have removed rocks from the moon and brought them back to earth and claim them as their own you know they haven't they haven't brought them they've shared them absolutely but nobody has suggested that those belong to nobody or whatever they, those are recognized as belonging to the government so Doesn't that open it up then to take advantage of some of those resources that could be profitable so like i go up there i have enough money in the united states versus say these countries who don't we go up and we just start mining and taking taking all of this stuff back to where there's hardly anything left by the time. I mean, obviously that's an overstatement, but you, you see my point. So it, it seems to me like that becomes an ethical problem too. At what point do only those already in power continue to stay in power in space because they have the materials to get there and to take those materials? So I always like to, to do two things. Um, do one thing. Let's, let's separate the moon and all of the other uh, non-planetary bodies, right. asteroids, right? I think... I don't think if, there, if there's an asteroid that I didn't know existed and you, a mining company, have gone and um, mined that out of existence, I don't care. More power to you. If you brought power back to Earth, you know, great. If you've been able to move people beyond um, into deeper space, wonderful. Um, but the moon, the moon is something special. The moon has been our neighbor 
for our entire existence. Um, every, all of our cultures have had a special relationship with the moon. It's like Antarctica, right? It's like no. Antarctica. It's a place that we haven't been too often. We don't go there a lot. We all share it. You know, it's, uh, it's about as accessible as, you know, the moon is. It's hard to get to. And do you see any similarities with the way we treat Antarctica and the way we should treat the moon? I do, and I love it because um, everyone everyone says to me, well, we figured it out in Antarctica, and we didn't. There is an Antarctic Treaty which says we're going to share Antarctica, right? But guess what it did? Instead oh, of waterway problems. But it, instead of determining who owns property or whose claims are right, the Antarctica Treaty says, we, under, we know there's claims to property. We're just going to not worry about those for the next 40 years. So um yeah it's a it it is a great analog but it's not solving the issues that we are facing right now and so you know when we think about the moon and and um it, it is going to be a while before we're sort of mining the the moon away to nothing but first of all we need to be responsible we've learned a lot about mining here on earth right we let's let's be responsible about what we use on the moon. Let's conserve some parts of the moon for its physical beauty. Um, you know, let's let's protect the history that's on the moon. Um, some of the some of the uh, uh, human-made spacecraft that are there, um, and let's think about how we're going to share. You know, when we have the model of the ITU um, sharing orbit, right, mm -hmm. holding um, uh, reserving areas, but that's not. It's not going to be easy. You know, that that is a really tricky question. Um, and it's made harder by the fact that we don't really know what's there and what's the value of it. So there is a there is a camp of those um, who say we need to put the rules in now. Oh no, you know before people get. But you know the, the counter argument is well, <laughs> what if there's nothing there? Then we just have all these rules that have just stopped any kind of development. Um, and we what is very clear about the moon is is we need it. Um, in order to continue our development into an interplanetary species. Yeah. It, it is the place we need to go to figure out how to live with lower gravity. It is the place right. we need to go to figure out how to shield ourselves against radiation. It's a place we need to go to start testing equipment in low gravity situations. It's the place we need to go just to see what it's like not to live on Earth for three or four years at a time. Um, and so there is something in the Outer Space Treaty called the Do Regard. Um, what we do, any activity in space has to be conducted with due regard for the corresponding interests of others. And, and that is this generation's um, challenge. So in the 1960s and 70s, we were really concerned about keeping the peace. And we were in the middle of a uh, raging Cold War, um, and everyone just everyone just wanted to make sure that we weren't using space to rain bombs down on each other. Um, or, and we didn't want our earthly squabbles to end up on orbit. And so we did that. Now it's our gen it's this generation's um, uh, challenge to take the next step. And as we become interplanetary, help us set up the guardrails to figure out how to do that in an orderly, responsible and sustainable way. Right, uh, fantastic. Uh, this is great. I, I have 20 questions, but I'm only going yeah. to ask one. Uh, what is in your, in your view, what is the most pressing space law related issue that you are wrestling with or you feel like there's a lot of uncertainty or there's areas for uh, movement or you know, progress? 
I would say um, it's it's what you raise. I'm going to use use an umbrella term, space governance. Um, the right now we are really tied as humans to to the way of life we have down here on Earth, and that includes categorizing and cataloging everything by by country, by nation. I'm American. You know, that's an American spacecraft. That's a Chinese spacecraft. Um, we have all of these laws that were made by humans to help us interact more peacefully. But the way we did that under the Treaty of Westphalia was to create these states, these countries. And so we interact with each other under the umbrellas of these nations, right? Things have changed an awful lot. You know, now individuals can talk to each other without, you know, traveling 300 miles or, you know, across on a boat or whatever, that it's immediate. Um, when we go to space, as we've seen, and we talked about, you know, you, you have students sending CubeSats into space, you know, and legally, those are objects of whoever launched them, the United States, whatever, but they're, you know, they're your students. And so we have to realize that space is very, very different from Earth. And so fundamentally, I think, um, we don't just have to figure out how we're going to keep the peace or how we're going to, you know, share. We have to figure out what happens when the nation state goes away. Um, we should not be dragging into space a treaty from Westphalia that was the only thing we could figure out how to keep the peace amongst ourselves. We're better um, so there needs than that to be, uh, There needs to be Terran law, not American law or Russian law. It just needs to be Exactly. for all earthlings right and it and it can't just be so space law is a is a subset of public international law that means uh, the law that is how states relate to each other so we have to transform our visions of space from being a legal regime which is what it is now the space law treaty that's a space legal regime to a place where humans live and that's a very different kind of community kind of building regulations based on community experiences so that that brings to mind this question, and it's maybe it's obvious for most people, but I'm thinking about it, right? So before you had mentioned like, okay, well, Elon Musk didn't sign these agreements or whatever, right? So if these agreements are made between nations, how do we ultimately get private industry, which seems to be the way we're going to get to space faster and perhaps more efficiently, to also buy in? Is it because they're launching from the United States, they have to fall under that the same way you said the CubeSat would be? It's United States property then? Exactly. Um, the, there was actually a huge argument when the um, treaty was being negotiated um, and the Soviet Union said nobody should ever be allowed to go into space as an individual. It should always be the realm of nations and states, right? And the United States and, the, and its Western allies said, no, 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 we got to think about a time when, you know, it will become commercial that we're, you know, let's, let's just, this is, we have to recognize the realities of capitalism. So Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty says um, the, a nation has uh, national liability and responsibility for any of its nationals that go into space, whether or not they were, um, you know, approved or whatever. If you are a U.S. person and you go into space, the United States is absolutely liable for anything that you do. And I, I, I talk about it in terms of, um, uh, you know, let, to put it in, in, in terms of we can recognize um, if I am living in Vermont and I cross the border into Canada, um, and I'm just Michelle Hanlon, citizen, the government has nothing to do with me, and I go raid the candy store and steal a million dollars worth of candy, and I come trotting back over the border and I'm really excited, 
Um, the United States will have to extradite me, you know, because we have an extradition um, uh, treaty with Canada, and I will have to face the music, and I will have to pay it back or give the candy back. But the United States is not liable. The United States has responsibilities to make sure that I get get put where I need to be to, to be treated. In space, I do that exact same thing, and it just happens to be a U.S. base and a Canadian base. The United States is absolutely liable for that candy. Mm-hmm. So not only do they have to say to Canada, so sorry, here she is, go throw her in prison. They have to pay Canada back that million dollars in candy. And that is the legal regime we're looking at right now in space. And as you can imagine, um, that is doing a good job of making sure that you know the United States is paying close attention to what its nationals do. Because if, if Elon Musk does hit a station with one of a Chinese space station with one of its his Starlinks. The United States is liable, um, but by the same token, you can uh, guess the absurdities um, when we have a space hotel. Let's say the space hotel has uh, compartments that were built in the United States and India and Australia and Iceland, and you have a hotel manager from Bulgaria and you have a tourist from um, Sweden. You know. And then the uh, uh, somebody who from the UK who is you know there to repair something, you know, accidentally hits the Swedish um, ter- uh, tourist with something built in uh, Japan. You know, that's not in the U.S. That you know today on Earth that would just be a slip and fall case in a hotel, right? You're just going to sue the hotel. Not in space. That's a right. diplomatic kerfuffle with like every country you can think of involved. So but what if a child is born in a space hotel? Well, how does nationality retained if someone is it the nationality of the parent or one or more of the parents? Or is there going to be a consulate? Will there be a US consulate in space that you can run to? <laughs> and you know, this is actually not that far-fetched because if you are in an airplane um in the over the high seas and your child is born, you know, what do you do? So um, it, it will depend very much on the nationality of the parents and what the nationalities, you know, what they say. So I think, cool. um, yeah. Um. Well, before we get to the last question, which is always super easy, I want to talk for a little bit about For All Moonkind. We didn't get to talk too much about it. Share with us a little bit about, you know, how that came about and, and how, you're, I mean, you're just all of a sudden you're with the United Nations and you're kind of keeping an eye on that. How, how did that even come about? So when I was in school, um, and I started really just absorbing space stuff. Um, I was tuned into a press conference um, with the then head of the European Space Agency, Jan Vorner, and he was in China. And the European Space Agency has done a fantastic job of trying to build this momentum for what they call a moon village, right? And so he said to, to the Chinese, Chinese counterpart, hey, hey, come on, you have to join us. Um, if only so that we can go to the moon together and take down those American flags. Um, and of course he was joking, but, um, but I was thinking, I thought, well, that's, that's a terrible joke. You know, they, why would you tear it? You know, this, this is the first time a human being ever set foot on another celestial body. Why would you tear down like anything related to that? And then I, I realized, wow, you can, there's no law against it. You know, here we have national parks, we have historic parks, we have the World Heritage Convention, um, where we protect things like Stonehenge and the Great Wall of China. We don't have that in space. And the issue is, think about it, 
we know that you can't claim territory in space by any means whatsoever, right? So if the United States says, and it did try, um, Congresswoman Bernice Johnson was like, oh, let's make them national parks. Well, you can't because that's claiming territory. Um, so we need to figure out a way to protect this history without claiming territory. And it's not just US, uh, Luna 2 was the first human-made object to hard impact the moon and any other celestial body. Luna 9 was the first soft impact. Uh, Luna, Luna Cod 1 were the first wheels on the moon, not, not our rovers. Changa 4 is the first uh, mission to the dark side of the moon, far side of the moon, I guess. Um, so there's a lot of history up there that we need to protect because I believe your students have every right to see that actual boot print and I don't want to see it erased. Right. That's really, really interesting. And I mean, I, I just love the topic just because, you know, when I, when I work with my debate kids, that's we're always considering those both sides and those other the parts that maybe aren't always defined so clearly by the law. And that's where the ethics and the morals parts come in. But our final question is always very simple. It's going to be for our listeners who might be interested. They might have just wanted to be a lawyer before, but now they're like, oh, OK, this is going to be my niche. What advice do you have for students thinking about going into specifically space law? do it. Uh, we need space lawyers. Um, and you know, what's really amazing about space law is that everything we do on Earth, we're going to need to do in space. And so if you actually really like, you know, um, working with animals, um, and we're going to need to do that in space. Um, if you want to work in entertainment law, we're going to need to do that in space. So I would argue, and I and one of the things that I'm trying to do is to make space law one of the fundamental core courses of any law school, the way we have uh, law students have to study contracts and property and constitutional law. They should have to study space law because there is we are already inextricably tied to space in everything that we do, and that tie is only going to get stronger. And so I think um, if you want to be a space lawyer, you have a very, very exciting career ahead of you because what's what's really the most amazing thing about space law is there's like five treaties and that's it so right. you get to make the law this is not yeah, oh i'm gonna read this the law says code, creating... whatever yeah right. you get to make it and there's nothing more fun than that and space and cyber and ai have changed so much so fast there's nothing i mean it's like a moving target right you there's so much work to be done there because that that field those fields are just exploding right now exactly yeah well i really appreciate you spending some time with us today i think you're talking to the wolf pack i saw that you signed up to talk to them as well so i will make sure that we tell all of our our talkies as we like to call them um so that they'll attend but thank yeah, we're, you so we're much definitely for... inviting our space club to join that meeting yes, as well and those, those are the, are the fifth and sixth seventh mm -hmm. graders so who probably had no idea that this even existed you know like that's that's exciting oh, I, I have two of them that want to be space lawyers. So they're, they're definitely excited. Thank, thank you so thank much for you. joining us today. That's awesome. This is so much fun. Thank you. Thank you. I love talking to people like Michelle Hanlon. I mean, you know, I don't always know or get all the concepts that our guests talk about, you know, in a way that you do. But this is one that is particularly interesting to me to be able to talk about these ethical problems that we're going to have. If we can't even solve them here, how do we go somewhere else and do that? It's, uh, I agree. Um, her, she, she's a domain expert for our listeners. She's one of the very best space lawyers in our country. 
and I believe there are only three law schools that um, are actively, you know, teaching the space law degree. But she's well known, well respected. Um, I, you know, the best that uh, we can do for our students is get them in front of people like that and let them just interact. So. I, I really, uh, the, beginning even with the Star Trek stuff, we could, yeah. we could have spent time there uh, even. Yeah, I didn't get to ask her space. about whether or not she thought it was so cool that Elon Musk put a copy of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in his Tesla. But I love her idea of making it required for anyone going to law school. That makes really good sense that it becomes something everybody's at least first and because it's going to be something that's going to come up. Yes, the for you for you parents that may be wondering what should my you know what should I encourage my student to consider my child to consider AI uh, machine learning cybersecurity uh, anything related with aerospace those are the future domains that are really opening up. Well, it's unfortunate she can't come to this uh, year's conference, but we look forward to having her at least speaking to the Wolfpack. And uh, you know, if you enjoyed this interview continue to join us each week as we interview people from different parts of of the aerospace industry and of course as we say let's, let's go, go to, to space, space.